0: Does that make sense? Um, So that being said, let me shift into a new sermon series that we're starting this week. We are in a year where we have said that the vision God has given us as a congregation is to be a people who pray like our lives depend on it. And so if we want to do that, we want to understand why we pray and what that means, and we want to get better at how we pray, right? So how do we do that? Well, we ask. We ask. And just like us, the disciples of Jesus asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And when you read the text, we're going to be in the book of Luke this week, and so in next week, and the week after that, and the week after that, really for the next six. We're going to be in the book of Luke, and we'll see that the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray like John's disciples did. And so, the reason for this is there was a fairly consistent pattern at this time, especially in Jewish circles, that a key component of you learning how to be a follower of God, how to worship the Father, a key component of that would be learning how to pray. And so, where you had teachers discipling or teaching people what it meant to know and worship the Lord, a consistent component of that would be, this is how you pray. Prayer was this consistent pillar in the life of anyone who wanted to worship God. And so it makes a lot of sense that Jesus' followers are coming to him and saying, Lord, you're teaching us what it means to know the Lord. We need you to teach us how to pray. And we want to be people with the same hearts. And so that's what Jesus does. And if you've been around church at all, you've heard of the Lord's Prayer. Um, In some expressions of Christianity, this is something that's prayed on a weekly basis. In the early church, there's actually evidence that Christians were encouraged to pray this prayer three times a day. And, And so here's why I think that was. This isn't a magic prayer. God doesn't do what you want him to do if you say this prayer exactly right. That's not why there's a weight that goes along with this. There is though something about the structure that Jesus is giving his disciples that should be something that we take seriously because it lays out how we should approach the Father. And it's really less about what God does and it's more about the state of our hearts. And so as we pray and we look at the Lord's Prayer, we want to look at what Jesus is telling us about the state of our hearts and how we should come to the Father in prayer. And so today, we're just going to start at the beginning, and we're going to start with where Jesus starts. It's interesting. The first place that Jesus directs his disciples in prayer has to do with their desires. It has to do with properly aligning their desires with who God is. And so for a lot of us, if we're not careful, prayer becomes an extension to or a pathway to fulfill the desires that we have. It's not bad. God created us to be a people that desire things, right? It's not bad that we want to go to prayer and say, God, fulfill my desires. Here's where we get into trouble. Sometimes we desire the wrong things. And when that happens, we get off track, not only from who God is, but from where he's called us to be. And so it's not a surprise that foundationally, here's what we're going to see at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, that prayer begins with a desire for the goodness of God. It's not bad that you have desires, but ultimately what Jesus is setting us up to understand here at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer is that prayer begins with a desire for the goodness of God. When we go to the Lord, one of the overflows of that time is that we have this thirst and desire for more of who God is because the more that we are around him and contemplate his word and go to him in prayer, the more that we understand how good that he is. And so as we pray, the foundation of our prayer is desire for the goodness of God. Let's read and see what Jesus says. In verse uh, 1 in chapter 11, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. It's worth noting that when you read about the earthly ministry of Jesus, he's almost always praying. Right There is this consistent pattern in the life of Jesus where he's praying. He's getting away and praying by himself. He's praying with other people. But there is this marked characterization of the ministry of Jesus where it is a priority for him to spend time alone with the Father. And so it's not a surprise that he's praying, because Jesus was always praying. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And so let's just pause because that's where we're gonna sit, is just those first two lines this morning. He says, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. In some translations you'll see thy will be done added onto that. And there's there's a reason for that. So depending on who you read and what you subscribe to in terms of the original text, there are those who would say thy will be done was added at a later time. Um, And then there are those that would say thy will be done was always there. And I'm gonna be honest, regardless of which one it is, if God's kingdom has come, then we can logically just assume that his will's been done, right? Like those two ideas are very connected. And so regardless of which way you wanna treat the original manuscripts there, we can safely say that God's kingdom and his will are very closely linked, right? And so the first place that Jesus goes, he says, our Father, hallowed be thy name. So he starts with the goodness of God's name. The beginning of our prayer should start with a desire for the goodness of God's name. That doesn't mean that it's fun to say. That's not, that, that's not the idea that he's communicating here. The idea that he's communicating is that when we desire the goodness of God's name, there is this connection, especially in Eastern thought, between names and character. So the name of God wasn't just an identifying way of referring to him. It was an extension and an understanding of who he was. And so Jesus says hallowed be your name or holy and lifted up and exalted be your name. May your name be a big deal. May you be the primary place that we look to to be awed, that we look to for trust, that we see as sovereign over creation. And what's interesting is you have this picture of God's power, but before that you have a picture of God's intimate presence because he starts with our father. And it's a very casual, intimate way of saying our Father. So he's inviting his, his disciples into this understanding of the goodness of God. That we have the name of God as a God who is a Father that is close to us, that loves us and wants good things for us. And we have a Father who is unbelievably holy and worthy of worship and adoration. So when we pray... The reason that we start this way is it because it centers us in the goodness of God's name or his character. That's actually the first point that we have here. I think there's a slide in there somewhere. And so when we pray, we see the goodness of God's name, of his person, of his character. And my question is, do we pray for that? So when we examine how we pray, When we go to the Lord in prayer, do we start with aligning ourselves with a desire for the goodness of His person? Um, Culturally, as a church, as the church, we have um, sort of this—I don't even know the name for it—desire, longing for um, vision or picture of going back to a time when culture really gets the name of God and worships Him. Right? We want to see God lifted up culturally, and I, I don't think that's bad necessarily, but I don't know if the best place to start and how we pray for God's name to be hallowed is in culture. I think it's fine if you want to pray that. I just don't know that it's the best place to start. I think maybe the best place to start is that God's name would be hallowed in our hearts first. Because when we go to the Lord in prayer, one of the ways that God meets us is he exposes where we're at in light of his goodness and grace. He doesn't expose us in a way that he's wanting to prosecute us or punish us. But I do think that, again, we start with the goodness of God's person because God wants to invite us into a proper understanding of who he is and what that means in our hearts. And so when we go to the Lord, we should be asking that his name be hallowed in our hearts. Um, the Our father part, I, I think for the most part, we're like, yeah, we want God to be close. We want him to be a father and that's good. What we want to guard against, though, is that the intimacy that we have with God as Father becomes a casualness in which we treat His power and His goodness. And so, what is hallowed in your heart? What are those spaces in your heart where there are ideas, people, concepts that are hallowed and holy that you lift up and that you worship and that you consider ultimate? Is it the person of God, or are there maybe other places that that you find yourself creating hallowed figures that you lift up? Where God's name isn't hallowed, where he's not exalted and worshipped in our hearts on a regular basis, we drift away from trusting and understanding his goodness. We turn God into um, an employee or we turn him into an abstract concept or a lender of last resort like, God, I've got nowhere else to go. Which, listen, it's not bad to go to God when you have nowhere else to go. But we don't want to forget that he's more than that. We don't want to forget that he's the creator of the universe, that he, by his very nature, rightly demands to be worshipped and valued above anything and everything else because of who he is. And we get windows of that in here, right? So when we sing, when we celebrate communion, when we pray together, we get these windows of what it looks like to hallow and worship the name of God. So we want that to carry over into our hearts. And we can't actively do that on our own. We can't just, I'm gonna try really hard to hallow God that we need him. We need him to help us do that. And so when we pray, it makes sense that we start by asking God for his name to be hallowed, that he would lift his name up and give us a proper understanding of his greatness. Before we do anything else, God invites us to frame him properly. When we properly understand who God is, then we can properly understand what he desires for us. If we think that God is not really that powerful, if we think that God's not really that holy or worthy, then it's gonna change how we come to him, right? We're not gonna see him as a God who truly wants what's best for us. We're not gonna see him as a God who can really provide for us. We're not gonna see him as a God who deeply loves us if we don't hallow his name for who he is. So are you asking God to lift his name up in your heart? Are you asking God to move in you so that you have a habit and a reflex of desiring to see him worshiped and made much of. It's not always our first reflex with him, right? But when we slow down, when we enter the presence of the Father and we ask him to show us who he is, it gives us this perspective of what it means to be able to come into the presence of our creator who loves us and simply enjoy him. And so when you pray, we start by asking God to give us desire for the goodness of his person. It is good that God's holy. It is good that God is sovereign. It is good that God is in control. Because of who he is, God's sovereignty and holiness ends in what is best for us our joy and our salvation and our ability to simply reflect his goodness and worship him it's all rooted in the goodness of his person so god as father should be hallowed in our hearts so when we pray it's an opportunity for us to be reminded that we need god to continue to show us who he is and we need god to continue To help us to hallow, worship, and revere him. Look at what he says right after. He says, hallowed be your name. He says, your kingdom come. Maybe your will be done, right? Like we can talk about that, but let's just start with your kingdom come because this is key. This is the goodness of God's design. Do we long for the goodness of God's design? See, when we talk about God's kingdom, there's really two elements of God's kingdom that commentators and theologians wanna talk about. There's the kingdom that's right now, and then there's the kingdom that's not yet. And Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God, and he talks about it in, in a similar way. There's the kingdom of God expanding on earth through the church. That's as we share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, as we love our neighbors, as ourselves, as we serve our community, as we come together and worship him and grow in maturity in our faith. There's the kingdom of God right now, but there's this greater coming kingdom when Jesus comes back and ushers in this era of eternity that we look forward to as believers as the apex of creation. We're reminded that God's design for humanity doesn't end here on earth. God's ultimate plan for us is not that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so we could be upright religious people who cultivate a really good civilization and then die and fade into nothing. That's not the gospel, is it? The gospel is that we would have this eternal life in Jesus Christ and there would be a new heaven and a new earth. And in that, the perfection and glory of God would be known through a people that had been made clean and pure and as his children live in a perfect state of eternity with him, right? Like that's God's design for the world. Ultimately, what you see Jesus constantly fighting against, not just in his disciples, but with the people of the day, is that they would truly understand what the kingdom of God is and what the kingdom of God is not. So the goodness of God's design lies in the coming of his kingdom. Here's a better way of saying that. God's plans are better than our plans. God's plans emanate from a holy, perfect creator. Our plans emanate from our broken flesh. And so we have to be able to be a people that come and ask God to expand his kingdom. And it starts with us seeing that the kingdom of God is what we should be longing for. So when we pray and we ask God that his kingdom come, one of the key places of our desires that God is crafting and working in is that we would displace the primacy and the goodness of our desires and our designs with the designs of our Heavenly Father. And I think a lot of times when we pray, this is the one that's the easiest to kind of miss. Because we want to go to God. And listen, we should go to God with our issues and our struggles and our problems and our plans. I don't think that Jesus is saying that we shouldn't. And we'll actually see that here in the coming weeks. But what he is teaching us is that before we do that, there is safety in us going to the Lord and saying, God, give us a desire for your kingdom. Give us a desire for your plans. Help us start from what you want for your creation. Not what I want for your creation, what you want for your creation. Now we have a very different foundation that we can dig into what we're asking about, don't we? Because now we can start to see, okay, do my desires line up with the kingdom of God? The the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world are not compatible ideas, And every time the church has tried to make them compatible with each other, things have always gotten really weird, okay? And, like, you can just go back and look at a history book as a non-believer and say that the church making the kingdom of God the kingdom of the world always ends with a lot of people dying, right? Like, so you can go back to the Inquisition. You can go back to the Crusades. We could play this game in more recent times, but then everybody's angry, so we're not going to do that. But here's what we can agree on, that Jesus clearly teaches that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man are not the same. They will always be at odds with each other because you can only serve one king. So, when we go to the Lord, our desire has to be that his design for the world would come to fruition. That his design for the world would be what we desire. And I know there's even pushing, well, but we can help God's kingdom. Yes, we can help advance God's kingdom through being obedient to him. But before we decide what that obedience looks like, it's probably wise for us as God's children to go to him and say, God, show us what your kingdom looks like. Show us what you want for the world. Show us what my role is in that. Replace my kingdom with your kingdom. Replace my desire for what society looks like with your desire for what society looks like. Replace my small vision for what is good with your eternal holy vision for what is good. This is a difficult prayer to pray because it forces us to let go of our idea of what's best. And if you're like me, you have a lot of ideas for what is best. I often feel like if I would have just been allowed to design the traffic infrastructure of the city of Atlanta, I would be happier. Now, the reason I would be happier is because you would have the exact same infrastructure system that we have right now, except there would always be one lane in every direction that is completely reserved for me and no one else. Here's why. Because I'm selfish and I want my life to be easy. Just a little peek into my heart as an only child. I just want my life to be easy, okay? And on some level, we all carry a little bit of that into us when we go to God with our plans. There's just something in us that has this reflex of, God, pray for my comfort and my will. Pray for my design for my life. God, here's my design for what it's going to look like when I grow up. Here's my design for what college is going to look like. Here's my design for what my career is going to look like. God, here's my design for how my spouse is going to behave when we have conflict. Right? Have you prayed that prayer? And so maybe, maybe a different way for us to approach the Lord would be to say, God, before we do anything else, help me desire your kingdom to come to fruition. Because the kingdom of God is ultimately pointed at the redemption of all of mankind so that they may be saved into eternity and God will be glorified and hallowed. That's a powerful prayer that resets our souls in this unbelievable, refreshing way because it puts us above the fray of our petty partisan politics. It puts us above the fray of this incessant materialism that's exhausting us as a society. And it puts us above the fray of all of the little idols that we wanna chase that never quite fulfill us the way that we wish they would. It just starts us saying, God, help us desire your kingdom. Help us put down our ideas and our preconceived notions in our selfish, petty wishes so that we can be a part of what you're doing. Because the good news about God is his kingdom is coming whether or not we desire it. It's just happening because he's sovereign. We're invited into asking God to shape our hearts to look like his. And so Jesus is, is really asking them to pray something that's simple but powerful. He's asking them to go to the Lord and request that his kingdom come, not just in the world's, but in our hearts. Again, it's got to start with us. Is God's kingdom the primary desire in my heart, or is it Nick's kingdom that's the primary desire of my heart? So one of the ways that we can stop is that when we pray, we begin by just going to the Lord and saying, God, point me to you as king. Take me off the throne. God, help me to trust that your way is better. Here's, here's the last one. And like I said, depending on your text, this is either in there or it's implied, but it's the goodness of his will. So that's a hard prayer to pray. God, your will be done. It's really a very close first cousin of his design, isn't it? Because a lot of times we go, and say, God, I want you to do my will. It's not bad. People go to Jesus in his earthly ministry all the time. Jesus, would you heal my son? Jesus, would you heal my friend? Jesus, would you heal me? We're going to see that it's good for us to ask God for what we need. It's not bad that we do that. But again, this is a little bit of a safeguard and a perspective setting exercise that we do with the Father. That we would pray for God's will to be done. And God doesn't need our permission to do his will, so that can't be why he's asking us to do this, right? It's not like he's like, man, I'd love to be able to do my will, but you didn't ask. God can do what he wants when he wants, so why do we ask him to do his will? I think it's part of ultimately this exercise of trust that we're called into in our relationship with the Father, is that we would put down what we want and trust him with what he wants. So when we first ask that God's will be done, it really frees us from this really weird relationship that I think sometimes our our kind of pop evangelical Christianity has created where if I do this, then God will do this. And if God's not doing this, it's because I haven't done this. And if I just pray this the right way, then God will have to be obligated to give me what I want. Or if I just live my life this way, then it's for sure that God will do these three things. And it really frees us up from this unhealthy picture of God as a God who's waiting to work for us. It's good to ask God for things, but he's not required to obey our commands. It's good that we have a father who wants to hear from us and our needs, but listen, sometimes the most loving thing that God does for us is to come to us and say, I know this is what you want, but it's not my will, and you've gotta trust that my will is better. That doesn't mean it's not painful. That doesn't mean that it's not frustrating, but it does mean that we have a God who loves us. And it kind of goes back to that first part, right? The goodness of God's person. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. If God's not good, then we can't trust his will. If God is good, if God is who we say he is, if God is a creator that is holy and perfect and all-seeing and all-knowing, that loves us, then we can trust that his will is good even when it's hard. And like I talk about this a lot like with my kids, like there's just times I tell my kids no, and it's not because I hate them, right? So um, I use this all the time, but Sawyer, my youngest, he gets migraines. One of the triggers for that is chocolate. Sawyer also loves chocolate. Like that would be all he would eat, I think, if we let him. When I say no, you cannot have a second pound of chocolate today. Is it because I hate him? absolutely not does he feel like it in that moment yes is there a reason that i am saying let's not do that yeah absolutely why because my will for him is for his good and so when we pray when we start by opening our hands and saying god your will be done it's not just an exercise of trust it's a recognition that the will of god is the best thing for our lives so here's the good news How do we figure that out? How do we figure that out? How do we, man, how do I know the will of God? Hmm. He's given us some tools. Like we have his word, we have his spirit, we have his people, but above all of that, we're asking him to do his will and show us his will. Like we have a God who wants to be asked. It's not up to us to figure this out on our own or to white knuckle this or like, you know, sacrifice a chicken and look at how the blood pull. Oh, God wants me to go left today. Like that's not what we have to do. I don't know if that's how you sacrifice a chicken. I'm just making stuff up there, okay? So if that's wrong, like, I'm sorry. It was just kind of popped into my head. We can ask the Lord to show us his will. We can ask God to help us desire the goodness of his name above the goodness of the world. We can ask God to show us the goodness of his kingdom. Ultimately, we can ask God to change the desires of our heart. Scripture says we don't have because we don't ask. And, and I wonder when it comes to our desires, if sometimes we don't take God up on his offer to ask for help, because we'll figure it out. I'll change my desires. If I read my Bible enough, I'll change my desires. If I, if I, if I just serve enough, that'll change my desires. It's, it's good to read your Bible, it's, it's good to serve. But your external actions are not enough to change your desires. God's spirit changes our desires. And we have access to the Holy Spirit indwelling in us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's Son, who lived a perfect life on earth, died on the cross for our sins and took the punishment that we deserve, rose from the grave three days later and ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, and one day he's coming back to usher in God's eternal kingdom. It is because of that that we are transformed. It's because of that that God changes and works in us. It's because of that we, that we desire the things of God. And so, if you're wrestling with your desires, you're like, man, I just wish that I desired the kingdom more. Man, if, I just, I wish I desired the goodness of God more. A good starting place is to ask God to change your heart and give you those desires. It starts with putting your faith in Jesus. And as we follow him, as God matures us in our faith, God begins to replace our smaller desires with greater desires. Just do we think to ask? Do we structure our prayer time in a way that we begin by hungering for the goodness of God? Because we have a God that wants to reflect that goodness upon us. We have a God that desires that we would want more of him that we would want more of his kingdom, and that we would want more of his will. I just, I don't know that that's always one of the first things that we ask for, because we're busy with the right now, and the right now is important to God, too. It is. We'll talk about that throughout this time, but listen, before we get to the right now, God wants to call us to something greater. He wants to call us to the forever. And so as we examine our hearts this week, as we go to our Father in prayer, I just, I wonder if it wouldn't be worthwhile to follow the instructions of Jesus and start by desiring the goodness of God. And it's an exercise of trust, and I know it's scary, but it's good. And so this week, as we pray, I think scripture's calling us to be a people that truly prays and asks God to give us a deeper desire for him. A deeper desire that he would be worshiped and held above everything else in our hearts. Maybe a deeper desire for his eternal kingdom. Even if we don't get anything out of that right now today, materially. And a deeper desire that his will would be done in our lives and through our lives. And it's difficult, right? Like we're not perfect at this. But the good news is we don't have to be. Because we have a savior through whom God has shown us his grace. And so as we prepare our hearts to respond to the truth of God in worship and to continue to hallow his name corporately, we have this opportunity to root that celebration in a reminder of what Jesus did on the cross, which is what allows us to come to God in the first place. And so as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion today, let's be mindful of what we're asking the Lord for. Let's be a people that this week humbly but earnestly ask God to give us a desire for more of him and his kingdom and to take away the desires that we have for our kingdom. God, we, we thank you for, God, we just thank you that you love us. God, we, we ask that you would make this more than just an exercise of religious familiarity, but that we would truly desire you God, remove the desires we have for the things of the world and and for these, you know, cheap temporary fixes to the deep problems that sin has caused in our hearts and replace them with a desire for your goodness and your holiness. God, replace them with a desire to see your kingdom come and your plan for the world take shape. Help us to experience your grace through what you've done on the cross and to be a people that grow in our love for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.